Okay, hi everyone. Ramona calling in from Barbados. How are you guys doing? I'm passing it over to Heather. Hey, this is Heather calling in from Provo, and we are really excited about our special guest tonight. We have with us Dr. Colleen Peterson, aka Dr. P. Yes, like the uh, original soft drink, like the beverage. And she <laughs> was um, one of my professors at UVU, and she's got 35 years of therapy experience. She's got so much experience with in dealing with trauma and dealing with teaching therapists how to deal with trauma. We're, we're so excited to have you. Welcome, Dr. P. Hi, thanks, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about how your, your journey into therapy began as a, as you know, as a therapist and yeah, so I did my master's training at BYU and I was working uh, in Arizona. I was working at um, a children's unit that was affiliated with a psychiatric hospital. And I was doing the um, all of the family therapy for the kids and the adolescents that were inpatient and then also did um, like some, some more intensive group work with adolescents and then worked a lot with kids at risk. Um, we had contracts to work with kids at risk in the schools, kids that um, had been removed from the homes or there was uh, CPS involvement. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of was that. I was, I was working there and one of my coworkers, her partner uh, was the director of the Center Against Sexual Assault um, mm -hmm. in Phoenix. And my my colleague had been talking up about my my therapeutic skills and she was like you gotta you gotta bring on Colleen she's got these mad therapy skills and so I had dinner with Judy and she was like hey like I really want you I've heard you've got really good clinical skills and I was like I don't really want to work with that population like it seems intense I don't I don't have any training in working with that and she's like, you don't have to worry about it. Like, we'll provide you that training. And um, and so she convinced me to do that. So for uh, close to about two and a half years, my entire caseload was working with survivors of sexual abuse, rape, uh, sexual trauma, all of those kinds of things. And that was really my introduction into the world of trauma. I did receive a lot of training from Dr. Judy, as well as, you know, she sent me to a lot of trainings and um, I really, really learned a lot through the training process, but I'd actually say I learned a lot more from my clients and from okay. working from working with them and learning from them. Wow. That, that is really intense. It's like your friend volunteered you as tribute and kind of, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So let's back up a minute. Define trauma for me, because I hear all sorts of different, like you've got your DSM, your official definition, but then other people define it differently. How would you define trauma? Yeah. So I think I would define trauma as a deeply distressing or disturbing event um, that impacts a person's sense of control or their sense of well-being. Um, and many of those events are associated, uh, that are associated with trauma are life threatening, right? Or there's a threat of bodily harm. 
or they challenge a person's worldview, right? Um, and, and so there's the traumatic event, but then the trauma is the person's response to that event. Um, mm -hmm. And that can be emotional or psychological. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of it for it to be, what I would say for it to be described as trauma or the fit category of trauma um, is that the event results in significant fear, um, helplessness, dissociation, confusion, or like other disruptive processes that really interfere with their ability to function. Yeah. Okay. I'm really glad that you brought up this association because I feel like um, one of my trauma responses is my insane ability to disassociate from everything going on. Um, and um, you were talking earlier about like your work with sexual assault survivors um, and as a sexual assault survivor myself um, I, I recognize that all those things that you described that fear those feelings of not safe all those things really manifested themselves into this response that I have whenever there's something not caused by the sexual assault but just in my day-to-day -day existence somehow even though i've blocked those events out takes me right back to that fearful unsafe place and has brought on anxiety that i'm still trying to process and understand so i'm really glad that you brought that that up <laughs> i feel like yeah that's where I'm at. and and you know ramona it when I'm when I'm working with clients, when I'm trying to train students, I really try to help them understand like, yeah, it makes sense that there's that sense of lack of safety or there's um, the, the sense of like, I'm just going to block everything out because it's, it just doesn't feel safe. And and I try to describe it as, you know, if someone is violated in such a violent and personal and intimate way. Like, how could that response not be, you know, very personal, right, and mm -hmm. intense um, and and lead to them feeling like I got to protect this, like I got to find a way to manage this because it's not OK. Uh, yeah, that that is um, when you said, Ramona, that it it makes it it feel like um like it's immediate like even though it's something that's in the past it feels mm -hmm. present like i have a client who will refer she doesn't talk about flashbacks she she says throwback she's like i'm thrown back you know and um mm -hmm. and that seems like a big part of of trauma is mm -hmm. is the the way it somehow is still present mm -hmm. yeah i i mean um i remember just having these events blocked out of my memory and my anxiety came up all of a sudden after covid anxiety came in and anxiety took me right back to 18 and 19 years old and even now as i go through 
the anxiety journey and I understand where my anxiety is being triggered from um, and the traumatic responses that come as a result of that, um, I I have to constantly tell myself, you are safe, you are safe, it's, it's okay. And I think a lot of people, especially a lot of members of the church, our thing is like, just gloss it over, everything will be fine. But we don't allow ourselves to feel those traumatic events. So we kind of just gloss over everything. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of it is we've learned so much about the brain and we've learned so much just from research about how trauma affects our bodies, our brain, right? There's a book by uh, Bessel van der Kelk about, you know, the body keeps the score, right? And, and in a lot of ways, our bodies, our brain, they, they keep those memories. Um, and mm-hmm. so one of the things when I'm working with clients who have survived those kinds of things, like I help them understand, right? Like, like yeah, we're trying to, to cope. We're trying to go on with our lives, um, and at the same time, those memories are there, those associations are there, right? And so in our in our own way of trying to protect ourselves, if something comes up in our in our world that has any semblance of, you know, looking like or feeling like what we experienced with that event, um, our body goes into automatic protective mode, rather than yeah. whether that's with dissociation, right? Whether that's with anxiety, you know, we talk about that with that, our body kicks into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, right? And that's a that's a part of the brain that's just automatically triggered for that protection. It's not like we're choosing to do that, but it's our mm-hmm. body's way of saying, hey, this is another potential danger. It's kind of like what you've had before, like, yeah. you know, be be careful here. Watch out. Yeah. So how do you help clients get the past back into the past? Mm, that's, oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, and I, and I think part of that is for me, part of it is, is like, I want my clients first and foremost to know that they have done the best that they could to survive the event and to cope Mm -hmm. with the event and to really validate that, yeah, of course you're struggling based on what's happened to them, right? Because so many times these survivors, they've tried to tell their stories and they've been dismissed and people say, oh, it wasn't that bad. It could have been worse or no, are you sure that really happened to you? You know, or they say, well, at least this didn't happen to you, right? There's that minimizing. And so the first thing for me is like, I want my clients to feel seen and heard Mm -hmm. and understood. And then I want them to help them understand that trauma response process. And so then I'll explore with them what, how it is that their, what their response cycle looks like, right? Um, Whether that's with anxiety, whether that's with, um, uh, depression, eating disorder, whatever those coping skills are. And so we'll, we'll look at those, those kind of coping skills. And then we'll talk about like, okay, which ones of those coping skills are serving you, Hmm. right? And which ones maybe aren't serving you so well. Um, and then go about, you know, helping them find new and more effective coping skills. One of the biggest ones is just to help them with, um, emotion regulation, which is related to, 
you know, you, you see that with anxiety, you see that with depression, you see that um, with that emotion dysregulation, right? It's like things get stirred up and they're, when they're so stirred up, it's not helping them. Like they're in this active protective mode, but it gets in the way of their relationships with other people. It may get in the way of, you know, them being able to focus on what they need to at work or, or whatever that is. So then part of, so then part of that process would be to um, identify, right, what those triggers are for them and where those associations are. Because for people, like, sometimes it's such an automatic response, that trauma response, like, they, they don't think about it and choose it to happen. It's an automatic response. Um, and so, and I'll, I'll talk with clients about that, you know, those those responses or those associations come from sight, smells, sounds, um, any of those kinds of, they're like visceral responses yeah. to things that are similar to what has happened to them. So I've got a, I've got a question. Um, like if somebody listening, like if, if somebody experiences something traumatic is there a way to triage that event so that it doesn't like solidify and transform into ptsd like are there things that can be done sort of soon after traumatic events that that reduce the likelihood of it like sticking around at, does that make sense yeah no absolutely and and what the research shows related to that is if they feel if they have a safe base right that they can turn okay. to when that's happened so if there's a connection or there's someone that can that they feel safe with that combats right or counter counteracts that intrusive um, offense that's happened against them then that can serve as a mediator um, in, in kind of moderating some of those effects. Okay. So then that, that makes sense why it may be harder for children if, if their parents caused the trauma, because then that I, the people who are supposed to be your safe base aren't, and then yeah. the, you may never trust that anyone can really be safe for you. Right. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes for kids, it's like, even if that the, let's say the abuse or that trauma happens with those, those parental others that should have been there for them. If they have another really important figure to counteract that, whether that's a teacher, whether that's a coach, you know, another significant person in their life that can fill those needs, then that can, that can also counteract some of those effects. Okay. That's, that's really, I like that. Uh, there was a, um, UVU had a, um, was it the, um, substance use conference that they had this last year? And one of the, the workshops was on, um, ACEs. And most of us have heard about ACEs, these adverse childhood experiences. And it's like, how is it like a nine? I don't know. There's like a short list and you kind of take this, like, did this, did you experience this or that? And then they have statistics like, okay, if people who've experienced four or more of these, and it feels really hopeless and overwhelming because some people have just experienced a chunk. And, and the lecture that I went to, they were talking about compensatory 
and and positive childhood things that actually could really ameliorate and and not totally negate the aces but could balance it out and so that's mm-hmm. really good to hear that if there are positive an aunt or an uncle or you know like a neighbor or or a teacher someone that a kid felt really close to that that person could be the safe base mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah i mean Graham, ramona you're always talking about your grandma yeah i i do talk about my grandma a lot and um i think uh her death was a traumatic event for me i ran away from home essentially and death Um, for children can be a very traumatic event and i was an adult i was 20 i think i was 26 when she died and even though I was an adult, this person was the person I had spent my entire childhood with. I didn't spend much time with my parents growing up because they were working. When she passed away, I was like, oh, I'm dealing with everything super well. I'm planning the funeral. I'm doing the things that are expected of a granddaughter. The day of the funeral, I can't remember anything. Oh. I got carried out of the church screaming. Oh, Wow. And because of that, I had to run away from home. When I was reaching out to people from my church, it was like, oh, you know where she's going. You shouldn't be upset. Um, I mean, even sharing on Instagram, people are like, it's okay. You believe in the plan. Like, and in my head, I'm like, I don't think you understand the grief that I'm feeling in that moment. And I ended up running away from home for three months. And I didn't speak. I, I I've now realized it was selective mutism. Mm. I didn't speak to anybody outside of my family for like a, a good two months. And that was a trauma response. And it, it was only when I went to Utah the last time, I was like, did you realize you just stopped talking one day? And you couldn't find words. And even now sometimes words are are difficult because of that event and i think just understanding that trauma even something traumatic is meant to be endured i think i would always say okay it's traumatic but i you know just dismiss it feel i i was helped me is to feel all the emotions as messy as they are and if I'm able to feel all the emotions, um, I turned to my mom because my mom felt responsible for her death. Um, and I realized laughter was something that I really like. So now I laugh a lot more. But people were like, why are you laughing? The thing about it is, unless you're the individual going through the trauma, you will not understand the the, the technique that works for them. No. Um, and that's something I found because as I have anxiety now, my sense of humor is ridiculous. <laughs> I will laugh at everything. So, I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that because I, yeah. I just feel, you know. Yeah, I, I have a few thoughts. If it'd be okay for me to share those, Ramona. Sure. Like, First of all, I'm so sorry about the loss of your grandmother. 
right? Mm -hmm. um, like she was your, sounds like she was your person, right? Yeah, she was. And for those of us, when we lose our person, that is traumatic, right? That safety and that secure base is gone. Um, and it, and it, I, I think what you described too within the LDS culture is, is not helpful of, you know, oh, like you can be happy there in a better place, you know, the plan, right? And it, and it minimizes that loss, right? It's almost like, no, you, you can't feel what you're feeling. You shouldn't feel what you're feeling because of this. And I have huge uh, problems with that. Like that's, I think that's one of the most harmful things that we do as well intentioned as it may be. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, you yeah. cannot minimize somebody's experience of loss and grief without it kind of multiplying their feelings of grief and loss. Okay. So I'm, I'm really mm -hmm. sorry that you experienced that. Yeah, I, I think that the culture of being LDS is that we are not too comfortable when it comes to complex feelings. And I was speaking to a friend of mine recently who's serving a mission now, and I was like, complex feelings are okay. I don't have to like everything. Everything is not supposed to be all roses. Sometimes things are multifaceted, and sometimes there are different responses that you might have to something that I might not have to it or something might be in the, in whatever and you might find it so entertaining and I might find it triggering mm -hmm. though we are still entitled to have our experiences um and while you might have your experience you might think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread I'm also entitled to say okay this is something that I don't think is going to serve me well and it's going to trigger me and be a traumatic a traumatic event i can step away from this and i think a lot of the times people struggle with with when you tell them i can't go this far or i can't have the same reactions to certain things the way that you do so therefore we kind of make them the villain of you know their their own experiences yeah. Yeah, I I um have noticed something that um when somebody when we hear about something traumatic or scary, we want to distance ourselves from it. So we mm -hmm. often say things like, "Oh, well, why would she have gone into an elevator alone with that person? I would never do that." You know, or <laughs> oh, but you know, I don't know why, what was she wearing? Because we want to think that there is some way that we can protect ourselves from those things. We want to find uh -huh. some way that we're different and we're safe. <laughs> and, yeah. And it, and I don't think people even realize that, that they're, um, that they're blaming the victim, you know, in their efforts to, to distance themselves, that there's blame and judgment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, I always have a difficult time when I see even people from the church or whatever sharing these images about, oh, yeah, be modest. Um, if you're modest, it lessens your chance of a sexual assault. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like before we came on tonight, I was talking um, 
and I was saying, oh, I just came into the meeting. I was, I'm dressed in my pajamas because it's almost 10 o'clock in Barbados. And I came on in my pajamas and I wasn't wearing the top that had sleeves. And for some reason, I heard this thing in my head, cover up, cover up, cover up. Bear shoulders somehow are triggering me. Why? Because what we've learned in the culture is that you're protected. You're supposed to be concealed you're, you're supposed to be this modest virtue and if you're not you're gonna get sexually assaulted or you're gonna invoke a man to have certain thoughts and yeah. things like that over time can be triggering because you now every time i go into a meeting or every time i go into a, a school discussion i always am like okay are you covered are you covered are you covered and i didn't realize that until recently mm yeah and and i mean we all we all have these body parts and it's really sad when we when we feel shamed about them mm-hmm. you know feel like like they're like they're bad and we've got uh, you know this warped view of modesty i can remember my friend's son was taking a, a karate class um my friend is lds and um the sensei said all right uh kids um, let's talk about modesty. What's modesty? And and my friend's son raises his hand and it's covering up your body. And the sensei was like, no, that's not modesty. Mod- modesty is, is not showing off. It's not bragging. It's being humble. Like, you know, a whole thinking, different construct, a whole different construct. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, and it's interesting because I'm LDS, right. But my mother is was born and raised in Sweden, and so I'm very connected to, you know, my Swedish roots. And so when I spend time in Sweden, like they don't, body parts aren't sexualized like they are here in the states, right? Um, and so <laughs> I, I I remember, you know, it's like my when I go to visit my aunt and uncle, like they're both running around in their underwear, and there's no shame. There's no. It's just like. It's just life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I've got I've got some more questions. Uh, Ramona, do you have a question? No, go ahead. Okay, I'm interested to hear yours. So, all right, here, like I have a like, because I I'm like a baby therapist, so like there's some stuff that like I kind of understand, but I don't. Maybe I'm a toddler therapist at this point. Like I don't, I don't fully understand. And, and I, I, I would say you're maybe preteen. Ooh, that's exciting. But that means that I'm the baby then, because <laughs> I'm still in training. Yes, that's right. So okay, so with trauma, I because some people there is like a event, like there there is an event that is is the traumatic thing, but with other people, it's like there's a whole bunch of tiny little things that in and of themselves aren't that bad, but they're repeated. And it's like the metaphor in my brain is, is that the single event, it's like somebody almost drowns. And of course that's traumatic. And then the multiple events, it's like waterboarding. It's like this, this one, each little drop on its own is not a big deal, but over time and compounded. And so how, how does that show up? How does that present? How do how do you deal with that? 
Yeah, so there's kind of two constructs that I think of as you're describing that. One is we talk about big T's and little T's, right? So big traumas and little traumas. The other thing that we talk about is like trauma and then complex trauma. Okay. Okay. So in terms of the big T's, how I would describe the big T's are they are extraordinary, significant events that leave a person feeling powerless or helpless. And they really involve acute psychological trauma, right? Like there's an intensity of it that has an immediate response. Um, so those are things like natural disasters, terrorist attacks, witnessing violence, um, sexual assault, combat, um, a deadly accident. And those things are often associated, right, with um, PTSD symptoms or uh, diagnosis. And then on the other hand, you have little T's, right? And those are events that exceed our ability to cope, hmm. right? Or that disrupt our ability to function. And they're more ego threatening, right? Rather than like life threatening or bodily harm. Explain what you mean by ego threatening. So ego threatening is like, it's about your well-being, right? So it's like, there, there are things like um, emotional abuse or interpersonal conflict or bullying, right? Like that sense of self that, you know, the ego about that. Um, harassment or infidelity, um, divorce. Okay. Yeah. And those kinds of things are, they're less likely to be associated with those PTSD responses, right? But they are extremely upsetting. And, yeah. um, and with one or more of them over an extended period of time, Right. That can lead to more severe disruptions, more severe dysregulation. Right. So that's mm -hmm. kind of more of that complex trauma where it's like there's this repeated series of really bad things that are happening. And it's that compound effect. Okay. And what's is there a difference in treatment? And like, I don't necessarily yes, mean, like, no, right? <laughs> like I'm gonna say what you heard all the time, right? It depends. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because it's like the the treatment is basically the same in terms of there's an emotional dysregulation, there's an emotional disruption, there's a there's a potential threat there. And so in some ways there there are similarities, right, with that, but there are differences in for instance, if you've got somebody who has one serious event, right? Like it's going to be more focused and you might be able to, for instance, use, instance, use some exposure therapy when it's one kind of trauma or one kind of um, associated response. Whereas if it's a compounded thing where there are repeated threats to their their interpersonal or their intrapersonal well-being, right? Then it's going to be similar, but there may be different things that have triggered that. And so there'll be multiple things that there are associations with, and then you'll have to, to kind of hit all of those. Hmm. 
but there's some commonalities, right? So part of that is teaching them like one of the big things that we know with trauma is mindfulness, right? Mm -hmm. and, and helping people learn how to pull out of that emotion dysregulation and ground themselves um, and really have the opportunity to be more deliberate about how they respond to things rather than it being just this automatic response or flooding and then this automatic response. Can you, okay, I have a oh, go ahead, Ramona. Okay, so is it possible for those big T traumas and those little T traumas to exist within the same space? Yes, absolutely. Okay. They're okay. not mutually exclusive, right? And in some ways they compound each other. Mm. Hey, I would love share your favorite grounding exercise and maybe we can just do it right here and now like let's get practical because that's something that I, that I love about you as a teacher is that you could be very theoretical and give us kind of the, the these the backgrounds the research but then you were really good about all right and here's what you do here's here's what it looks like this is how you can do something yeah so one of my favorite ones with clients is well, I got two. One is right, like a breathing exercise, um, or I'll have them notice things in the office, right? So it's the you know notice five things. Um, so and what does that do? Like, because I know it works, but why? Why does it work? Why does getting back into the body ground us? Um. That's a, that's a good question. I think how I would answer that is that in some ways it takes us out of our head and puts us even more in our bodies, right? So with the breathing, right, it takes us out of that, um, that space where we're kind of spinning, right? And then we run with the more emotion dysregulation, um, and it, and it helps us to just tap into those more parasympathetic things of our body, right? Like breathing, we do it automatically, but if we intentionally focus on it, like then that becomes expanded and there's less of this disconnect of trying to control. And it's like, oh, I can, I can breathe. It's safe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know how to breathe. I, I, I can yeah. breathe without having to think about it. I can I can do that. Yeah, I think one of the most difficult things that you can do in life is breathe when you have an anxiety attack. I know. I mean, that's um, the thing is like we say, well, everybody breathes. We're like, until we don't. <laughs> until we don't. Um, like when I first started my job that I have right now, I remember going into the bathroom and having the worst anxiety attack. And I'm trying to ground myself. I'm trying to focus on my breath, bring it back to the breath, Ramona. And <laughs> I'm laughing about it because in theory, it wasn't, I, I don't want to dismiss my trigger, but, um, I remember being in the bathroom after I was like, what the heck happened? This is, this is not the end of the world, but I, I tried and I tried and I tried and no matter what I was doing, my breath was just this jumpy, jumpy, flustered breath. And I never realized how hard breathing was until I got anxiety. 
Yeah. And I think if, if part of it is, is that you're having difficulty breathing, like, I don't know that, you know, a breathing exercise is going to take care of that. Yeah. Right. Like you may, you may have to engage other parts of your body to be able to do that. Um, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for bilateral stimulation and I'm not talking about just having like not doing full on EMDR even. Right. But sometimes just like I'll have clients just kind of hug themselves and tap, you know, on, on each arm and just that process of like noticing that, you know, oh, I'm being, I'm tapping myself on each arm takes the, takes it away from that focus on, oh, I, I'm so anxious. Yeah. I can't breathe right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. I'm using that one. So my favorite one is to run my hands under cold water like a a little bit of like, it's, it's a little bit jarring and it, it just, it, it helps me, um, like get back into my body in a safe way because you're in your body, your body remembers the trauma, you freak out, you try to get out of your body, you dissociate, you know, dissociate. And then, um, yeah, just for me, something cold often helps me like feel like I'm, I'm, I'm back in my body. Yeah. They talk about one where you have, if clients are in full distress, just a, a bowl of cold ice water and putting their face in it, like pulls them out so fast. Like that's one well, of the, it's, it's like the old timey movies when they would slap someone's face Yeah, and like, it always worked, you know, snap out of it. And then they would slap them, ah. and, you know, like, like in, I think of Moonstruck with Cher and Nicolas Cage, where, you know, he's freaking out and she slaps and goes, snap out of it. And then he does. I'm like, okay, like there's other ways. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to slap my clients. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. And part of that too, is finding what works for you, right? For some clients, they find, you know, like a lot of people, it's like, uh, I got to go turn a candle on. There's a scent that helps calm me. Right. Or, you know, they, they have a, um, like I had, I had one client that, that liked, um, soft blankets. And so I figured out what type of blanket it was that was soothing for her. And I went out and bought one and I had one in my office and I kept it in one of my desk drawers. And if she started to, you know, dysregulate, I'd say, well, you want, you want the blanket? And she'd be, yeah. And then sooner, sooner, like soon after that, it was like, she would just go grab it herself when she was dysregulated. And, you know, just that, that blanket around her was helping yeah. to, to that. I love okay. It. I have a question that this is for you too, because you are the adult and preteen <laughs> therapist. Um, I remember a conversation that I had with Heather in Utah when um, I was at the midpoint of my anxiety journey. And I told her, I don't think I want to be a therapist because I have massive anxiety. I can't remember if you remember this conversation, Heather. Um, But what does trauma look like for therapists? How do therapists deal with their own traumas? Oh, we get triggered too. <laughs> yes, we do. You want you want to take a shot at it first, Heather, and then I'll I'll go. Well, one of the things in um in our program that they strongly encourage all of us to have therapists. 
and to, to, even if we felt like we were fine to have a therapist and kind of, you know, be able to address things because sometimes things come up. I mean, we, we're looking at all sorts of scary stuff. And there were a couple of times that, that I really did get triggered in, in, you know, school. And, and it took me by surprise because I, I feel like, yeah, I've worked through my stuff and I'm, you know, nice and solid. And, um, and just that, like, we're all human, we're, you know, mm-hmm. and part of me feels like one of the things that, that makes me a good guide is that I've been on this journey and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm, and I know that you can live with anxiety that you can live with depression, that we can, and that these things aren't always out to get us, that most of the the stuff that happens to us, like when I'm feeling depressed, I'm like, okay, what is my depression trying to tell me? How is it trying to protect me? Okay. It's telling me you're working too hard. You need to spend a day under the covers reading a book. It's actually trying to take care of me. And anxiety yeah. is the same way. I'll say to clients, like, why do you think you feel so anxious? Well, my anxiety wants to make sure I get everything done and that I do a good job. And you're like, okay, you know, so uh, that that's my approach to it. But Dr. P, I'd love to hear how you manage or what you think. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think Heather, you've heard me talk about that in my, in our classes. Right. And, and for me, it's, there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is I talk about that we are the instruments. When we're therapists, we're the instruments. So we're the instrument that's taking in the information. We're the one that's deciding, okay, here's what I think is going on. This is how I think I could could help this person. Um, and so part of that is like we have to be so self-aware, right, that we're not imposing our beliefs, our own stuff on the clients. And so part of that is, right, like we encourage all of our students in training, like, like Heather said, to, to do their own healing, to have their own therapist. We require them to do a lot of reflection, a lot of self-reflection and really honing their, their self-awareness um, to do that. Right. And the other thing, and so I think that's really important as a therapist, like you have to have your own shiz together. And if you don't, you have no business doing that because it's going to spill over and going to potentially cause harm um, with your clients. The other thing that I would say with that is I I love there's a there's a gentleman, a a guru in the MFT field whose uh, name is Harry Aponte, and he talks about the person of the therapist and he talks about how. For us as therapists, our own life experiences, our own struggles have this unique ability for us to have compassion and hold empathy for our clients, right? As long as, right, we've we've worked through that and then we're not imposing that. And so I think there's a a both and, right? Like, yeah, we have to we have to make sure that we're work, we've worked on our own stuff, that we stay on top of our own stuff because yeah, we get triggered and things come up in our own lives. But the other piece too, is that because we are human as Heather mentioned, right. And we have our own experiences. Like we have this greater capacity to be compassionate with our clients. Right. And that is a gift you know, as, as you were talking, Ramona, about your experience with your grandmother, I was 
I was reminded of my own father's death. My, my father was my person, right? In the attachment world, like he was my attachment figure. And, and I was devastated when he died, right? Um, but one of the things that I know that started with that was my capacity to hold grief and loss is so much bigger because I went through that experience. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I really like how you said that because I, before, I think I used to fight with my depression and my anxiety a lot. I used to fight at it. Now I realize that anxiety and depression brings me to something that either isn't resolved, needs to be resolved, or it's teaching me something. And I never used to look at it like that. I used to think of it as this crippling thing. It's going to destroy my life. This is the end of the world. Armageddon is here. That's how I used to view it. And now I think I've made a little bit more peace with it. I accept it when it comes because most of the times I walk away from that feeling like if I've grown like my heart, like the Grinch has grown like two sizes bigger. Um, <laughs> and I remember there was a missionary who served here um, and she was struggling with horrible anxiety. And I was at that point going through the throes of it and sharing my anxiety journey on Facebook. And she was like, Ramona, you really helped me because you were sharing exactly how I feel. I wasn't in a place to talk about it, but because but, you were so transparent when you were struggling, it helped me. And I was like, okay. I guess, but I like to touch back on like that conversation with Heather. I think that kind of, I, I, I don't know if she remembers the whole thing on that drive from Olive Garden, in football, but um, I, I think that propelled me to really think of myself, not as this broken vessel, which I had thought I was like, okay, I'm doing my bachelor's in a couple months. That's the end of me. And therapy and being a therapist um and it propelled me to think of myself that I can be uh an MFT <laughs> and you know that it might I don't want to say full brokenness like I'm able to emphasize with a lot of people a lot better than most people who are just coasting along and thinking that everything is great mm-hmm. yeah it's it's so true I have realized my favorite people are people who've gone through really hard things. <laughs> Those are the people who I feel like are most interesting and compassionate. And I just, um, you know, cause we all know people who live in bubbles who it just like everything <laughs> like, and they're lovely people. But when the poop hits the fan, I don't go to a bubble person. I yeah. go to someone who who's also been broken and and put themselves back together that that's that's where i go and people people are are drawn to those people i mean there's a reason why people reach out to you and say that kind of stuff ramona is because you're willing to be to be vulnerable and share in a public space and then and then that vulnerability shows your strength it's this kind of weird paradox that that, you know it's very jesus it's very new testament yeah (laughs) you know the last shall be first and the weak shall be strong yeah, I, I joked and told them, um, I tell them all the time, the day that I get my master's in marriage and family therapy, all of y'all are getting bills. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, okay, so 
diverting a little bit. So Ramona and I are super into, we love our pop culture and we love our TV shows and stuff. And I feel like every TV show now uses the trauma trope, like Ted Lasso season two, like Ted starts freaking out on the sidelines and, and like, we know that we're building to some, like there's something, you know, or Ramona in, um, in Bridgerton in the second one with, with the bumblebee where he's freaking out because there's a bumblebee, you know, cause his dad died from a bee sting. Like, um, is it just my imagination or does trauma seem to be trendy right now? You know, that's a good question. But here's what I would ask. Okay. Is it is it more trendy or have we become more trauma informed? Mm. I would say we've become a lot more trauma informed. And I think um my my studies before was communications. So I think um a lot of the times that the producers now are trying to make TV relatable. So everybody kind of has a trigger. So it, it kind of goes along with what society is feeling, I feel like. So maybe that's why we're seeing a lot more trauma on TV. I will say that not all trauma is good trauma. I mean, good for entertainment trauma. Yeah. Because, <laughs> I'm glad you clarified um, that. <laughs> I'm just, uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, I'm just saying all trauma is not good for entertainment trauma um, yeah. because there are certain things that trigger in a racial way uh -huh. um, black suffering especially I told a friend a friend was suggesting a movie to me and I told her I don't watch black suffering movies mm. And she was like, oh, but it's a good movie. I don't watch Black Suffering movies. I, I, I'm i like, this is my reality. I don't want to be triggered by something like that. Have thoughts towards another race because of the feelings that I watch when I watch that movie. So I don't watch anything that has to do with Black Suffering, um, oppression. I try not to watch too much oppression stuff. Um, and I told her, it's just me protecting a certain part of my piece if i want to know about a real historical event i'll read the book mm -hmm. or watch a very balanced and nuanced and fair documentary and that's as far as i go mm -hmm. and I there don't can be like suffering porn like it, it, people yeah, can, they, like yeah. get off on sort of watching suffering like mm -hmm. my family like we're very different, but something we all liked Law and Order. All of us loved the love old Law and Order shows. My sister has given birth while watching a Law and Order. And then when the second iteration came out, Special Victims Unit, I watched two episodes and I was like, no, this is all about violence on female bodies. I can't, I can't watch this. I, I, I understand, but I also am judging. <laughs> That's okay. No, I, I not in a not in a horrible way. I I was gonna ask if she named her daughter Benson or Olivia. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, no. So, but but yeah, like there, I, I'm I'm with you, Ramona. There are certain things that I'm like this, even if it's historically accurate. Like some things, it almost 
feels like you're turning trauma into entertainment. Yes. And, and, and almost like exploiting the suffering of, of certain like black and brown bodies, female bodies. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can't, I can't do it. We cannot, we do not have the capacity. No, no. And, and I'm glad you spoke up and, and brought that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think if it's uh, like, I'm not as like pop culture savvy as either of you are. Um, And I know for me, like, I don't know, maybe there's a morbid part of me having been a therapist for a while. But for me, like if I go to see those kinds of shows, it's not for me, it's not about entertainment. Right. For me, it's about a lot of times it's about getting insight to mm. someone's yeah. experience with that. Right. So I I remember, <laughs> oh, what was what was that show? Um Band of Brothers? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so it was like my father served in World War II and he never wanted to talk about the atrocities that he mm-hmm. saw. Mm-hmm. And, and people are like, why would you watch that, Colleen, right? And it was like, because I want to have a better understanding of what my father's experience of war was like, right? Yeah. And how yeah. it potentially impacted him. But yeah, like I, I, I don't, I would never, I don't like it when they, when they, they take things out of context and they, they glorify things like no and trying to yeah. make it entertainment yeah that that, I, that bothers me as well yeah like right. the girl with the dragon tattoo felt it it i i don't know for me it crossed a line i was like at this at almost it was just too much reveling in female suffering mm-hmm. oh. so i was like yeah i agree there i gotta stop so okay i have one more question And then I don't know if either one of you have some final thoughts. My last question is, can someone get vicarious trauma through like someone close to them going through something really traumatic? Like people who, you know what I'm saying? Like trauma doesn't happen to you. Yeah. Like caretaker trauma? Sorry. Like caretaker trauma, you said, Ramona? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we talk about it. There's a construct in the mental health field, right, of vicarious trauma, vicarious PTSD, compassion, fatigue, those kinds of things. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I think was helpful, but it was like, it, it also kind of bothered me when I was being trained to work with, with sexual assault um, in particular was... I remember going to a training and they were talking about, you know, like secondary trauma, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, having heard those stories and I mean, it's like you experience it. And one of the things that you talked about earlier, Heather, was you talked about, right. When you hear somebody's experience of it, like you try to minimize it because then it makes it less real. Mm -hmm. Right. And one of the things for me, as I was at that training, it was like, yeah, like, and they talk about for us as therapists, when we hear those traumatic stories, we're changed. 
And, and I, I acknowledge that I am changed, right? It's like, I know that rape happens in all different circumstances and all those kinds of things. And it is not, Ramona, I'll go back to what you said. It is not about what a woman wears. It's not the situations that she puts herself in, right? And, but it's like, I can't, like, I can't lie to myself anymore that it doesn't happen. It's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to the people that I love, right? And so, like, one of the ways that it changed me when I was the director of a, <clears throat> of a counseling center um, and I had staff working for me, I made it a rule that no one stayed by themselves after hours, right? And it was like, after seven, eight o'clock, nobody was going to be left alone, right? And for me, if I was staying late and one of my staff was there, it was like, I mean, because you know how it is, Heather, I, uh, well, maybe you don't because things have changed, but right. So often on university campuses, parking for the students is across. A so far away. So far away, right? And so at night, if I were walking out with one of my, my staff, uh, I'd be like, okay, like, you know, they'd be working and I'd say, oh, I'm going to stay with you till you're done. And they're like, no, it's okay. And I was like, no, you're not going to be here by yourself. And then we'd walk out and I'd be like, okay, where are you parked? And they'd be like, oh, I'm out in the, you know, North 40. I'm like, okay. You know, and I, that's a privilege I have as faculty. Like my parking is typically right there by that building. And I'd be like, okay, so I'm going to drive you to that. And they're like, no, you don't have to do. I was like, no. Right. Because it's like, it's like I, I can't control all those other things, those atrocities out in society, but I have some ability to control what's in my realm. And so that changed me. Right. And and I and I hate. Right. Like with my my niece and my grandniece. Right. It's like, no, like women do have to take extra steps to be careful. Right. Not not out of what they're wearing or what they're doing, but it's like they're just out of a safety thing, right? And it's like, so don't, you know, be aware of your circumstances and all those other kinds of protective things. And that's how it changed me, right? Like I, abuse happens, rape happens. Yeah. And as long as women are seen as objects to be violated or protected, you know, as long as they're not seen as like full humans, then, then we are at higher risk. Yep. For sure. All right. Ramona, any final thoughts? Um, final thoughts, final thoughts, final thoughts. <laughs> um, no, I don't have any. <laughs> All right. Dr. P any, any last words for maybe people out there who are listening, who are wrestling with stuff. Maybe they don't call it trauma because it doesn't feel like, well, I was never kidnapped. I was never, I'm not, you know, I didn't survive a war. I can't really call this trauma, but, but something that doesn't go away. Like what's your advice to those people? What would you tell those people? I would say that their value and their innate worth is reason enough for them to explore things if they want to, right? Not that they have to, but if they want to, you know, and, and I, I will say this, right? Like therapy can make a huge difference in people's lives, but part of it is they got to find the right therapist, a well-trained therapist, and they have to trust the process. And sometimes when you've had things happen to you that weren't out of your control, like that's one of the hurdles that you have to get, 
get through. But I would just encourage anyone who's thinking, like, if you're thinking it might be helpful, why not give it a shot? Thank you so much. New back. All right. Thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to all of you. Been fun. It's so nice to meet you, Ramona. You're awesome. It's so yes. nice to meet you, yes. too. Okay, and now Carol Ann will hop in and, and do the, the ending spiel and her husband will splice it in. Um,